Hey Randy, let's do something we haven't done in a very long time. Let's introduce ourselves. But Lily, we already know each other. Uh, I get it. You mean to introduce ourselves to our listeners. Yeah, it's been an awfully long time since we did that. And, you know, while our guests are the most important people on the show, and we do have a great one this week, we do matter too. This was your idea, so you go first. Well, I'm really glad you think that we matter. (laughs) That is good. Um, Okay. So, hi everyone. Nice to meet you. I'm Lily Smith, your podcast co-host. I'm also organizer of Product Tank and Product Camp in Bristol, and I've worked in tech for 14 years and worked in startups for about five of those years as a product manager. I'm now head of innovation at GoCompare, which is an insure tech business in the UK. And I'm Randy Silver. I'm a product consultant and coach these days, and I just released a book called What Do We Do Now? a few months back. I've been doing product stuff officially for about 15 years and did a lot of things in music and radio before that, including launching Amazon's music stores in the US and UK as their first hip-hop and children's music editor. You can get all the stuff about my book and everything else at outofowls.com. And our guest this week is Kate Leto, who's here to talk about her new book, Hiring Product Managers Using Product EQ to Go Beyond Certain Skills. I've been lucky enough to teach classes with Kate before, and she's a font of great knowledge. She was also the first ever guest on this podcast for a pilot episode which never aired, and we've been wanting to get her back on ever since. So let's get right to it. The Product Experience is brought to you by Mind the Product. Every week, we talk to the best product people from around the globe about how we can improve our practice and build products that people love. Visit mindtheproduct.com to catch up on past episodes and to discover an extensive library of great content and videos. Browse for free or become a Mind the Product member to unlock premium articles, unseen videos, AMAs, roundtables, discounts to our conferences around the world, training opportunities, and more. Mind the Product also offers free product tank meetups in more than 200 cities, and there's probably one near you. Hi, Kate. Welcome to the Product Experience podcast. I hope you're doing well. I am doing very well, thank you. Very happy to be here. Um, So it'd be great if you could give us a really quick intro into who you are and what you do. Sure. My name's Kate Lido, and I'm a consultant, and I focus on two areas, one being product and another being organizational design and transformation. And believe it or not, there's a lot of links and there's a lot of commonalities there that I'm sure we could have like another podcast about someday. Mm-hmm. Um, but those are two, two of my focus areas, really. And I've been a consultant for about 10 years now. And before that, had an extensive product career that started at started back in the U.S. in San Francisco that brought me to London with Yahoo, working as head of product for Moo.com back in 2008, I think it was. And I've been an independent consultant since then. Amazing. And you are writing a book or have written a book um, all about hiring for product EQ. So Give us a quick kind of intro into how you ended up writing this book and what Product EQ is. Sure. So 
I ended up writing this book because I realized a few years ago, after working with clients in the product side and the organizational design and transformation side, that a lot of the work we were doing and a lot of the focus was being put on what I call technical skills, technical skills of product management. And that could be anything from roadmaps and OKRs or KPIs and MVPs or design sprints or A-B testing, you name it. That was the focus of product management questions and wants and desires was how do we master these things and how do we do it better? And I felt like that was only half of the conversation around what product management and what I call product practice really is. Because in my mind, it really is practice, kind of like medical practice or legal practice. We have these big unknown problems to solve and we try to reach into our virtual toolkits and use some of our technical skills to solve this problem. And it takes a lot of practice. But I felt like there was a huge piece of the conversation that was missing. And that was about the human skills that go alongside these technical skills. And human skills being things like leadership capabilities, the ability to influence, the ability to be an active learner, to have creativity and innovation and make really good decisions, not just for yourself, but for your team and your organization, the ability to deal with conflict. And that was all part of product and product management, but it wasn't being focused on and it wasn't being talked about. So I created this concept called Product EQ, which is bringing that convert that part of the conversation and shining a light on human skills on leadership and influence and decision making conflict resolution and emotional intelligence improving your self awareness and relationship management and all of these wonderful things i wanted to create a space for that conversation to make people feel more comfortable with it and make it more apparent on why it was so important for us as product people to be to be really strong and able and understanding of what these skills are. So I started blogging about it and the blog turned into talks and the talks turned into a book. And here we go. <laughs> so just pushing, uh, going a little further back on that, what's the difference between product EQ and product IQ? I've never heard of the term product IQ, but if, <laughs> if you think about just, if you take away the words product overall, right? And just mm -hmm. say EQ and IQ. So EQ is, um, abbreviation for emotional quotient. An emotional quotient is your measurement of your of emotional intelligence. And IQ is the measurement of your human intellect, pretty much, your intelligence. So IQ is much more around your ability to learn and the intelligence that comes from that. And the ability to learn is more related to, to the technical skills. Whereas EQ is more on the emotional side. It's your emotional quotient, your emotional intelligence measurement. Uh, so I, in creating product EQ, started learning about emotional intelligence and kind of and built from there. But the thing that I've discovered over the last few years of, of thinking about product EQ and building that out is that attaching it to a term like EQ gives it some framework and some structure and a place for conversation, but it can be a bit restrictive because mm -hmm. EQ itself has a lot of frameworks and a lot of methodologies and a lot of capabilities and a lot of words that can confuse people and can be a bit restrictive. So product EQ, as I talk about it now, and I talk about it in the book, hiring for EQ is a broader concept. And it does talk, use words that we're more, I guess, accustomed to, things like adaptability, things like innovation, things like resilience, versus just going down more of kind of a 
formalized EQ dogma. So for the kind of older folk out there, including myself in that, um, are we talking about the difference between hard skills and soft skills? Is that, you know, that that was kind of how they used to be described? Yeah, yeah. And I grew up in that time too, where it was hard skills and soft skills. And hard skills when you were writing a job description were the must-haves and soft skills were the nice-to-haves in a lot of ways. And it also became yeah. kind of a, a gender divide, right? Hard skills were usually associated with men and soft skills with women. And the more and more research I've done into that space, it felt like calling them soft skills was kind of putting them on a lower level, you know? It wasn't giving them the respect that they deserve. Um, a few years ago, I read a blog by Seth Godin where he said, let's stop calling them soft skills. And I completely agree with that. So I wanted to think of them and have conversations about them in a different way that represented where we are now, really, as, as, as people and thinking about them in a more respectful way. So that's where I've come up with technical skills and human skills is how I relate to them and how I talk about them. Um, it's just more relevant. Is there an ideal balance of what product people should have? And is there a difference between someone who's working, say, like a, an AI ML field or different levels of seniority versus uh, about what that balance should be? Yes and no. In the book, in Hiring for EQ, I say let's work towards a 50-50 balance, right? Because what I see for the most part is that we do over-index. As a community, as practitioners, we over-index on the technical skills. You know, and maybe we say that if we were to take a serious look at our technical skills versus our human skills, it would probably be 80% technical and 20% human. So I say let's try to get a 50-50 balance. But the number itself isn't the big goal. The goal is just getting more balanced and becoming more aware of it and bringing human skills more into the way we work. So while we may throw down a number like 50-50, it's just let's work to a more balanced approach to product management is the overall goal. And by, by balanced, you mean, you know, having a, a kind of equal focus on technical skills and the human skills? So how do we understand our, I mean, te with technical skills, you can kind of go, yes, I've done roadmaps, you know, 20 million times, or I've done user story mapping this many times. So I feel like I'm competent or not in those certain areas. But with, with human skills, how do we understand how good or not we are in those areas? Like, I don't know, self-awareness and empathy and coaching. Yeah, it's, it's a bit trickier because obviously when you're learning a technical skill like road mapping or OKRs or whatever it might be, there's usually a specific framework we can master and we can do that pretty quickly. You know, we could read all the blogs, we can read the book, we can follow the five-step process and we can get there. With human skills, it's a longer process. You can learn human skills. In fact, I, I you know, in a lot of ways, I like to say that I'm I'm living proof of that because it's something that I've tried to focus on for a number of years now and have had a lot of help with. So there are many, many tools out there that you can actually try to measure different aspects of emotional intelligence or your human skills. You can measure your self-awareness. There's all these different 
different ways to actually pay a little bit of money, take a test or bring in a practitioner to give you a test and actually learn to evaluate that and get a number, kind of like your IQ. However, I think it's just as possible to do in a more grassroots way, I guess you could say. So a lot of it, I think, is, is self-reflection and feeling, understanding where you feel that maybe you have some gaps, learning about that, and then working on those day in and day out. You can grow emotional um, or human skills and emotional intelligence, but it takes time and it takes a lot of discipline because really you're changing a behavior. So you need to unlearn one behavior, behavior and learn it a new way and do it again and again and again until it becomes your new behavior. So a lot of times it's helpful to have a coach or even a peer coach to go along with you on that progress, on that process. Um, so it is possible. It's just you got to be committed and you got to be disciplined about it. And I'll share just one weird story about that and all the research that I've done. I found that Ben Franklin, you know, Ben Franklin, founding father of the U.S., he was actually one of the first real students of self-awareness. And when he was a young man, about 20 years old, he sat down and made a list of like 13 different qualities that he thought were important to being a good person. And they were all related to some type of human skill. And every day he would assess himself in the morning and at night and how he did on these things. A bit over the top, but that was Ben's <laughs> way of doing it. So, <laughs> I think it's I think it's just interesting. We can find ways of growing our emotional intelligence and growing our human skills. Um, it's just it's going to take a little bit of reflection and experimentation, just like with anything else, to to figure out what works for us to do that. So we don't all need the same uh, to work on the same things or to get to the same level of things, do we? And it it may change depending on who you are, the situation you're in, um, and things like that. So how do you know? what the right things to work on are. Is it situational? Is it personality? What's the, the best way of doing that reflection? Yeah, it's every person's going to be different. Just like we say every product's different, you know, and every scenario is different. Every person's going to be different. We all have a different background and we have different experiences that make us who we are today. So it's very challenging to say, and a lot of times I get this question in terms of if I'm a junior product person, do I need X human skills and X technical skills? And then as like a, a CPO, chief product officer, do I need X skills, X human skills and X um, technical skills? And I think the thing is, it is really a person by person situation. It's a role by role situation is what, how I talk about it in the book. Mm -hmm. It really comes down to what's needed for that role, the type of human skills and the type of technical skills needed for that role um, versus what another role, perhaps on a similar level in the same organization might need. So in order to understand maybe where your gaps are, it's just important to do a little bit of self-education and self-learning. Um, read some of the things on my blog to find out and learn more about self-awareness and learn more about organizational awareness, which is a big product management skill, I think. Um, mm. Learn more about conflict resolution. And you'll need to be able to do some basic self-reflection of, am I good at this? Am I not good at this? And be honest with yourself. So that's when I, I often say, start with self-awareness because that's kind of the, that's the foundation. If you can be honest with yourself about, 
how your behaviors and how your emotions are impacting you and others, you're going to be able to understand and unpack how you might want to grow in different human skill areas. Okay, so we've been talking about self-reflection here, but the, I think the point of the book and one of the great things that I, I really enjoyed from it was talking about how to hire better. And that you start with something very, very simple and something that's usually done pretty badly, which is the role description. Right. So what's the better way of, of creating one? Where do you start? Yeah, what, yeah, it's interesting because every organization I've worked with, when it comes to hiring, when they think about hiring, the first thing they do is they write a job description, right? And it's usually, they usually don't even write it. They usually cut and paste it from, you know, five different job descriptions that are out there already from competitors or Google or Amazon or whomever. Um, so, and that job description is usually pretty traditional. Usually it has your must-haves and it has your nice-to-haves and that's the hard skills and the soft skills. And they're usually so outrageous, you know, like they're listing these ideal things that they'd want for somebody that they don't even have and they know aren't possible, but let's put it down in paper and say, this is what you must be in order to join our company. So instead of doing that, what I encourage organizations to do is to do, to use something that I call a role canvas, which is basically breaking down a role, addressing a role, not a job description, addressing a role and an building it up by answering four really simple questions. One's what's the purpose of the role, which is not just the job title, right? It's not just product manager, or associate product manager, or director of product. It's really why, why does this job exist? So it goes a level deeper. Then it asks for the accountabilities for that role. So what are the outcomes that role is working towards? Then it asks for the human skills and the technical skills that are needed to really successfully achieve those outcomes. And the trick here is not to do that in isolation, not to answer those questions and build out that canvas in isolation, but to do it with your team. The team of people that would be, that are hiring this group, including your, some key stakeholders, maybe managers, and of course the recruiter if you're working with a recruiter, to make it more of a, a collaborative effort versus I'm just going to go away and write a job description really quick based on you know five different sites that I've seen. So it's it's actually giving, forcing yourselves to give the the role some consideration and thought and intentionally putting together based on a collective a collective thinking of what this role is really all about. And this format works for all kinds of jobs. It's not just specific to product, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, that's the thing with product EQ as well. Well, I framed it within our product world. Mm. These learnings, these teachings, this thinking is applicable far beyond product to just about any type of space. Um, that's why I often use the same type of thinking, the same methodology in the org design and transformation work that I do as well. And once you've come up with a, say you're hiring, I don't know, 10 product managers. <laughs> once you've come up with your kind of role canvas for one product manager, is that it? Do you then just hire based on that one role canvas for, uh, on that yeah, on that one role canvas for the, the 10 open positions that you have? No, I would say I would encourage to think of each role as, well, it's a unique role, right? There's, it's very rare. I've never seen, even within the same product organization, that 
one product role is exactly like another. There's always mm. some differences. So the canvas, the role canvas that I've created is designed to be really simple so you can easily go through these questions. You know, they will cause some debate. They will cause bring about some thinking, which is on purpose. But just as you should come up with a different job description for each position you're hiring for, the role canvases are need to be unique. And when you start to actually do more than one, um, organizations start to see how there are so many differences, even within the same level, even within the same group. So it's important to treat each role as unique or as, in, as a bespoke offering. Mm. Changes to our digital world in 2020 mean many companies need new tools to help them flourish, and Amplitude is here to help. With their product intelligence platform, they help top product teams at companies like PayPal, Instacart, Peloton, and Atlassian to build product experiences that convert and retain customers. In fact, they've become the gold standard in analytics for teams asking questions like, How are people using our digital products and why do users convert or drop off? Which features drive the most impact and what should we build next? See for yourself how companies like DoorDash and Cisco build for growth using Amplitude. Visit Amplitude.com slash MTP. When you're starting to do this well, when this is starting to, to work, you should notice a difference. Uh, you should be able to measure that that things are going better. What what's the metric or what's the observation that you use to say, yeah, this is this is going better now? It's there's usually not a number involved with it, at least not off the bat. There are there's a lot of research that shows that organizations and teams with higher levels of self awareness and higher levels of um, innovation and creativity actually perform better than those with lower levels. So there's lots of statistics about that. In terms of a lot of the work that I've done, it's more contextual. It's more you see that the people involved notice the differences themselves. Because as you start to do this work, this type of human skills integrated into hiring, it also has an impact on uh, personal growth. Right. So there is an increased ability to become more aware of the work you're doing and the changes that you're seeing and maybe even in the changes in the type of people that you're bringing in to interview for positions, which impacts the culture that you're you have as an organization as well. It could be quite a chain reaction, but it, there's usually not a specific number or metric you're hitting. You can always come up with something creative, but I don't, <laughs> I don't really come up with a specific KPI off the bat. I don't know. You had a really good quote in the book that I loved that that pointed at a, it's probably an apocryphal number, uh, an anecdata rather than you know anything really. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, but from from uh, I was from the Capital One CEO who said uh, people spend at most companies people spend two percent of their time recruiting and seventy five percent managing their recruiting mistakes. Yeah. And that sounds like a good place to start and see yeah. if you measure yourself against that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And also, I guess there was one other metric that you could point to. Uh, Jack Welch, former CEO of GE used to, he was very, very purposeful and involved in hiring 
uh, within his organization and made it a priority, making good hiring decisions. So he had a metric that he created called the hiring batting average based on American baseball, of course. So what he did, he evaluated or he asked people before they made a hiring decision if it was a good decision or a bad decision, if they should move forward or not. And he kept track of that. And a year later or six months later, he would go back and do a bit of a retrospective, actually, and say, was that a good decision? Did that person who made that decision take it seriously? Did they get it right? Did they get the role right? And he actually calculated an, a hiring batting average metric around that. So you can always get creative um, when you're thinking about this. Do you think people um, feel the pain of bad recruiting and acknowledge that it, that's what it is? Um, and do you think that there's a certain kind or, or there's, you know, on the flip side, is there a reticence to kind of admit their mistake and just blame it on the candidate? Yeah, I think there's a lot of that. It's really, as with anything that doesn't go right, there's always finger pointing. You know, if if you did have higher levels of emo- of human skills, maybe you'd be able to acknowledge where you made your own mistakes. Wouldn't that be great? And I think we're getting there, right? But a lot of the organizations that I've worked with, I actually get contacted after the fact. For example, I had an organization that contacted me last year. They decided that they needed to hire, I think it was 65 more product managers or product people, different levels in a quarter. And they decided they needed to do so that was about it was about a 35% increase in their in their overall product organization. And they decided they needed to do this in order to deliver their next strategic priority. And they contacted me after the hiring had begun and people had been there for a few months and they realized that it wasn't going so well. Um, that the people that they had hired weren't a great cultural fit or skill set fit in many ways. And we're actually then ready to take a look at how can we improve things. So I think, unfortunately, at, well, as and kind of typically, people see after the fact that maybe we didn't do this the right way. And that's actually the approach that the story that I tell in, in the book as well is the story of an organization. It's a fictional organization based on a lot of different client learnings and client experiences um, about making a hire, a senior level, director level hire that doesn't go so well and the impact that it has on the team and the rest of the organization and how, as we work together, we really started to unpack that and and integrate human skills and try things in a different way, experiment with how they create roles, experiment with how they interview, experiment with how they think about culture and fit and diversity and even how to retrospect and reflect as they're going along and how that makes a difference. But unfortunately, I think it's, it's often something that after the deed is done, um, people will start to reach out and realize maybe we should think about this differently. Is there a, something, a mistake that you see companies making again and again when they start recruiting? Oh, so many. So the one that I just mentioned that there's often a knee-jerk reaction. We must do, we must deliver this new feature or product or revenue stream or whatever it is. Therefore, we need 20 more people. And they just go out guns blazing to get that. And often the process that organizations use is linear. It's like a sales funnel, right? 
starts with a job description and then it goes to a phone chat and then an in-person interview and then a case study and then a, jo a job offer. And it just you just keep moving ahead. You don't take time to actually realize that this is a this is, hiring is a learning loop, just like anything else we do in product. And we need to give ourselves space and time to reflect as we're going along to make sure we're going in the right, we're actually moving in the right direction. So that's a very common thing. People want to hire, you know, for really not well thought out reasons. And it's usually just a number. It's a, we want 65 new people or we want 10 new people without actually dissecting what those roles will be. And then it's just a, a straightforward linear process without realizing that there's different ways of doing this. And that at the end of the day, at the end of this whole process, they might actually have some people that aren't the right fit. And that could have been that could be could have been different if they would have thought about the process differently along the way. Um, all the way through the job descriptions as well. I mean, some of those are just fantastical the more you look at <laughs> 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 yeah. So just going back to your point about um, it not being a linear process. So, you know, in my experience of, of hiring um, and being hired, it very much feels like a linear process. Um, how we, would you encourage people to be less linear about recruiting? And then what impact does that have if you're on the other side of that that process as well? Yeah, when it comes to to make things not as linear, what I talk about in the book is actually giving yourself space from the onset to realize that there needs to be time for calibration and retrospection along the way. So for example, let's say that, and this is, I talk about this example in the book, that the the team the hiring team that i that i was working with realized that the people that they were coming that they were bringing in for interviews were were so different than the culture that they already had they were so different than the other people that were already on teams on their teams and working in the organization and they felt like it was going to be a cultural kind of um kerfuffle, I guess you could say, that it wasn't actually going to quite fit. And they wondered how bringing in this different type of person was going to work with the existing culture they had. And they, what they realized through having what we called a calibration session along the way, which was a, a retrospective really that they had every two weeks throughout the hiring process, was that their culture was going through a lot of changes. And that as an organization, they needed to be more aware of that and what that would mean for the new people coming in and what that mm -hmm. would mean for the new people that they were thinking of hiring, that there had been a big shift in that thinking. So the takeaway from that was that the more the team can imagine up front and plan up front to have space for retrospective and space to make some changes, maybe with their existing organization, some shifts in that thinking, or the way they're actually looking to recruit and hire people, maybe even the way their job description is structured. Because that was something else that, that we noticed was that they found a lot of the people were coming in and applying were men and not women. And we went back and took a look at, through one of our calibration sessions, we took a look at the job description and realized a lot of the wording was more male oriented than per, and perhaps not as female oriented. So we played with the wording and put it back out there and got a different type of reaction, a different type of application. Um, so I guess at the end of the day, it's giving space 
within these different phases um, as you go along and realizing that what you find might push you back a phase. You mm-hmm. might need to go and make some changes to something, just like we do with our products, right? If we find after maybe a week cycle or a two-week cycle of development or testing that it's not getting the outcome that we we're hoping for, then we go make some changes. We pivot. Just on that point about diversity, how do we, because, you know, frequently we'll, if you think that you're a good product person, you might be like, right, I want someone like me who's going to be this, this, and this, and this, Um, or, you know, whatever you're doing, design or engineering or whatever. Um, You want kind of more of the same people that you have in your team that are the best people that you have, but that doesn't necessarily make for a more diverse team. Mm So how do you get people to cover off making sure that there's diversity in the in the range of human skills and technical skills and in I guess in the overall fit as well or yeah. is it not important is it not important on the fit side of things I think diversity is hugely important and it's one of those areas that research has shown again and again and again that teams especially product teams with more diversity within them tend to be more innovative. They tend to perform at a higher level. Revenue, revenue um, impact is even, is even greater. So teams with teams and organizations with greater diversity at a leadership level and across teams perform better. They are more innovative. They approach projects and, and problems in a different way, which is, which is what we need in product teams. So it is a, it's a huge challenge though because as you said a lot of times we have this implicit bias right when you go into an interview if somebody doesn't look like you or talk like you or think like you you may not like them right off the bat so the first thing we need to do is really educate ourselves about what these different biases are and do it in a way that we can actually have a conversation within within our team or within the organization to say that to understand what the bias is and start to figure out different ways that you can become more aware of it and build that into your hiring practices. One of the things I talk about in the book is after you have an interview, um, going back and writing down, doing a like 10 minute journaling or five minute journaling, however long you have to just capture your thoughts on what about this person felt that you really liked if liking is a really important aspect of it or how you thought this person was really a good fit for the role and how they weren't. And really ask yourself, what are these different likes and not likes or pros and cons really saying? Where are they coming from? So again, Mm -hmm. it's a bit of self-awareness and self-reflection that you as an individual need to have in order to bring more diversity into your team and bring some of these hiring practices in. I always say, unless you have it, you can't see it. Right. So unless Mm. you have the self-awareness, you're not going to be able to see where maybe you're not hitting, you're not considering or thinking about diversity in the right way. But it does start with understanding what implicit biases we bring in, being able to have a conversation at a group level, at least if not an organization level, about what that is and how they manifest. And then start to think about how you can tackle those challenges in different ways. So the way you're talking about interviewing, we often treat it as a bit of a science, but there's definitely, it sounds like there's a much more of an art to it than is often understood. Uh, And we treat it as a science from the perspective of, we think that there's 
a case study that we need to, to cover. We need, there's certain questions we need answered, but we're trying to find out not just capabilities, but the person's product EQ or just general EQ. How do you structure an interview? How do you make sure that you're covering that and, and really gauging that from the candidate? Yeah, that's, it's really interesting because I think interviewing, I would almost flip flop it. I would say it's less of an art and more of a science in many ways. Because I think we often do go into interviews just saying, my gut reaction is going to tell me if this person's right or not. And yes, I may ask a brain teaser question and throw that out there to see how somebody responds. But that's not really going to tell me, you know, if the person is a good fit for this role or a good fit for my organization. So when it comes to evaluating human skills, there is a technique called uh, behavioral interview questions, which... There's a, a book that I, I often re refer to called the EQ interview, where they actually break down different types of questions that you can ask, really simplistic questions to understand how somebody's behaved in the past and how that behavior has impacted perhaps themselves, the business, and other people. And if that was that's the type of behavior want in your organization now or is a good fit for your organization. So there is science behind it, believe it or not. And they say that behavioral interview questions are the most relevant and most telling type of question that you can ask in an interview because it gives you more perspective, you know, beyond just what did you achieve? You know, what product did you launch? What service did you get out? What were the metrics? You know, how great did you do? What school did you go to? Into much more of what were, what are your behaviors? What have they been in the past and how have those impacted others? Do you have any favorite questions you like to ask? Mm hmm. Or would that be telling? Yeah, a little bit, but <laughs> <laughs> it depends what you're looking for, really. If I go back to the methodology that I've I've laid out, you know, if you have um, a role canvas and you've decided that your role really needs to be have a higher level of conflict resolution skills, because maybe there's been a lot of conflict on your team lately, and you need some somebody who's going to be able to step into that space and be able to handle that and help manage that and resolve that in a positive way. Then there's questions that I would ask around that, just to even understand how they've handled conflict in the past and what that how that could actually be brought into my organization. So I don't really have like... A lot of people ask that. What's my go-to? I don't have a go-to anymore. It really just depends on what the role is. And do you ever pre like give these questions before the interview? Because I know with some questions like this of like, you know, how have you felt dealt with conflict before? Like when I'm put on the spot in that situation, I then can't think of anything that I've done for the previous 39 years of my life. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so yeah, yeah, yeah. Is it better to kind of give a bit of like, you know, we want to we want to hear stories of you demonstrating some of these things or and and give someone time to really think about it? Well, I think it it varies. I think with some roles and some situations, it's helpful to give some certain areas that you'll focus on. Sure. Mm -hmm. But I think also part of the interview is seeing how somebody reacts. You know, and if somebody does, if an, if a candidate does react with kind of a blank face, then that, that might be telling you that there's something right there, right? There's body language, there's tone, there's facial expressions. And 
it's not that that's like a dead end then, right? It's not that you have a blank face. That means you're not getting hired. It's also how the conversation goes from there. Um, and if perhaps there's some coaching to help you, uh, you know, get to the response, mm. what a lot of it comes down to the responsibility isn't always on the candidate. I think we, we have this yeah. kind of wrong, wrong in our heads that we're there to trip up the candidate and we're there to, um, make them squirm or something like that. A lot of the, the onus of a, a good interviewer is on the person conducting the interview. And yeah. ask questions that people can respond to in a very simplistic way, but that they can also dig into and nudge a bit to help get the information they need. Um, so it's listening to the story and piecing, being able to piece together a story in order to get the information you need, rather than trying to put somebody on the spot and make them squirm. Mm. Kate, that was absolutely fantastic. Hopefully we didn't grill you too badly for, for this interview, but uh, <laughs> you're definitely hired. Well, thanks. No, it's <laughs> been a blast. Thank you very much, guys. Hey, Lily, what do we have on next week? Oh, it's special. We have two episodes related to each other over the next couple of weeks. Matt LeMay is following up on his MTP Digicon keynote to talk more about one page, one hour. And then Adam Thomas also talked to us about his template for doing just that. Oh, that sounds great. Subscribe to make sure you don't miss out. Our hosts are me, Lily Smith, and me, Randy Silver. Emily Tate is our producer. And Luke Smith is our editor. Our theme music is from Hamburg-based band POW. That's P-A-U. Thanks to Arna Kittler, who runs Product Tank and MTP Engage in Hamburg, and plays bass in the band for letting us use their music. Connect with your local product community via Product Tank, our regular free meetups in over 200 cities worldwide. If there's not one near you, you can consider starting one yourself. To find out more, go to mindtheproduct.com forward slash product tank. Product Tank is a global community of meetups driven by and for product people. We offer expert talks, group discussion, and a safe environment for product people to come together and share learnings and tips. Mm -hmm.